This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. First thing we should talk about, Jason or Jason? Jason. Jason. It's not a person. It's <laughs> not a right. A serial killer who can't be killed himself. <laughs> Hey everybody, my name is Gordon Fontenot in Boston. And I'm Mark Adams in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. Hey Mark. Hey Gordon. How's it going? Pretty good. How's your week? It's been good. Hot. Same here, but not hot. But not it's, hot. It's summertime in San Francisco, so I wore a jacket to work today. <laughs> so they're doing this, um, Uber is doing this ice cream thing today, where you can, inside the Uber app, they like dynamically added an ice cream button. So you can just you can just order ice cream to the to wherever you are, and it's insanely expensive. It's like thirty bucks for five for five people. When you have a chauffeur in a suit drive a, a black Lincoln Town Car to you, full of ice cream. It's an ice cream truck. Like you're literally just ordering an ice cream truck. Like it's not like a dude passing out ice cream bars from the back of a limo. It's like a proper ice cream truck that drives up. But so we order it here in Boston, and so it shows up in downtown Boston, like a block away, and we walk over, and we start getting ice cream out, and it's like the f- five of us from the Boston office, and we're getting ice cream, and there's a line behind us of just like random people that are like, oh, sweet, ice cream truck. It's 100 degrees outside. That sounds like a great idea. And they wouldn't serve any of the people <laughs> because they didn't order it through Uber. So... The five of us are sitting there getting ice cream, and we're, we walk away super happy, and we turn around, and there's, like, kids getting turned away. <laughs> they really didn't think no. that through, did they? No, not at all. Was it playing music? No, it was not. They were literally just, like, sitting there, hanging out, waiting for us to show up. The music would have been good. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> Maybe some Pantera. <laughs> so API clients, how do they fit into a typical MVC architecture like the client itself so like you have a wrapper client like you have a you have a like my service client dot m file right so i'll 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 normally I'll, i'll definitely normally have like a class so on my client right now the pattern we're using and i didn't actually write most of this so i can't totally take credit for the pattern but i'm i'm a i'm kind of a big fan of the pattern i think it's we've ran into a couple places where um the flexibility of this pattern has really kind of saved us. Uh, we have uh, an API that right now they're migrating to a new version of the API. So we actually have two different endpoints. Um, and those two different endpoints may act two different ways. We have an API request class. And this API request class essentially has a, like a factory method on it. it, it ha- it'll hand back a request, but it does like uh api request with method path api version parameters and then it actually also takes a model factory you can use this request class to build a request uh, uh essentially it's a wrapper around afhttp request operation so it's a request operation okay so we have um so we have this api request class that's a wrapper on top of af AF networking's HTTP request operation. And then on top of that, we'll have like a user request factory, right? 
So I have like a user request factory, and it'll have stuff on it like request for current user, uh, request to create a user, and then you pass in a user user model. Anything that any of the API endpoints where we need to do user stuff, there's a class. Uh, it's essentially it, it is a factory class. So the request for current user, what it'll do is it'll build the endpoint that it needs to hit. It knows which version of the API it needs to hit. It knows what model factory it needs to pass in. And so you're building this request that kind of knows exactly where it needs to go, what it needs to do with the the return, and what it needs to do with the return data. And then it creates that, and then we hand that off to another class, kind of a more general class, that performs the request and then just hands back the return data. So in this case, it would hand back the user object from the server that's already been parsed through the user JSON factory, right? So the, what the user JSON factory is doing is user JSON factory is taking the return JSON from the request and just directly mapping it to the user object or the user model in the system. What kind of what kind of functionality do these um, model factories have on them? Is it just as simple as taking in a dictionary and parsing? Uh, how do you resolve relationships between resources? So there's so it's it's kind of a weird situation in that this app actually doesn't save anything down. It just it makes requests kind of as needed, and it doesn't actually need to persist anything for long periods of time. So a lot of what the app is doing is parsing JSON for a specific view, right? Right. And then turning those into native Objective-C objects and displaying those on screen. So there's like a abstract JSON factory or JSON model factory. And then that's the kind of super class for all the, the other model factories. And it literally will just have like a create from attributes method and a root key method and we'll just do kind of one-to-one maps saying create you know here's uh the you know first name get the first name from this attribute get the last name from this attribute get the email from this attribute and then pass those into a user object and then it'll pass the user object back does that make sense oh okay how are you specifying the mapping between your JSON keys and your uh, property keys? Is it just a dictionary? No, it's 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 at, in this case it's actually like essentially hard coded. So it's just saying like n a string email equals attributes. There's some weird stuff here too. Again, it's 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 really kind of specific and it works really really well in this case. I think some of the pattern can be abstracted out and and would be really useful in other places. But we don't have to cache anything for one or. We should probably cache some. We we are caching some stuff, but we don't need to cache everything. So we kind of default to just in-memory stores. And then it's actually a public interface. Like this is part of an SDK. So we actually don't want to expose like a first name, a read-write first name attribute on user. So we have like kind of private init methods that just take all the objects, all the parameters that way. Does that make sense? I see. So anything that anything that's being parsed as a result of one of these requests, it comes back basically immutable. It's just there for consumption to populate 
some UI. Almost almost everything is like that in this system. So we don't do like user dot first name equals first name that kind of stuff, you know, right? Because that's that's immutable. If you needed to update the first name, you would have to go through the you know modifying your user account, and then we do the post to the server to update, and then that would return the modified version, and then we parse that and display that. Yeah, that that, that sounds like a good pattern when you don't really have to worry about persisting the things that you're getting back or caching them in some way. I think I think that we can still use this pattern. Like I don't think there's anything for this pattern that would keep us from like say persisting the uh like the user object on disk even if it's just saving it out to um like NS archive or NS co- using the NS coding stuff, you know, saving it out to disk that way and then reading it back later. But what it has allowed us to do is we can have like like a different when I go through, for example, when I go through one endpoint, it may parse the user one way because it's because I'm hitting an API, uh, you know, the 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 new version of the API in one place, but the old version of the API in the other. So what I can do is I can actually have two different model factories, and I can just pass those in arbitrarily so that it can parse out the user just kind of however I however I tell it to, right? That's not hard-coded to the user at all. The user doesn't care how it's parsed coming back from JSON. The model factory cares about that. So the model factory is, is the real mapping between your responses and your model objects. Exactly, exactly. And so it just has like a method where it takes in a dictionary and it creates a user out of that dictionary. And it the model factory knows what version of the, I mean, it doesn't, it implicitly knows what version of the the API it's hitting just because we're telling it how to parse the thing. But, like, it doesn't know if it's on the new version or old version. All, the, all it knows is I'm looking for these keys and these keys associate with these values. Right, right. Which is pretty nice, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I'd actually like to see this. I'd like to see if we can combine it with uh, with the method I've been using on my latest project. Now, we have kind of the opposite requirement of you. We have to cache everything, save everything. One of, the, one of the big requirements for this application is that it needs to be able to work offline. Because in many of the places where you will be using this application, you may not have cell service. So to that end, from the beginning, we knew that we needed a very simple way to make requests to an API and then have everything from there to getting the response back, parsing it into objects, resolving the relationships between those objects and persisting in core data to be as seamless, automatic, and obvious as possible. So on the API front, it's basically the same. We're using AFHTTP client to wrap up the connections to these endpoints. But we did something a little different where instead of using AFJSON request operation to handle parsing the JSON, we subclassed that and had our own. And in the subclass, we are overriding the setter for the, for the uh, success and failure blocks. And at that point, we get a hook to what's coming back, and we immediately kick it off into this entirely separate subsystem that is capable of uh, uniquing and persisting these objects. Hmm. So really, it, it, it's two problems. It's, it's one, getting the data, and two, getting it into core data, and they meet right there in that overridden success block. Right. Can you go into more specifics on how that how that works? Yeah, so once we get the raw 
response back. All right, let me back up. So this success block also takes the class of the model object that this response should pertain to. And our model objects have to conform to a couple protocols. Um, One that is responsible for uniquing them. Mm -hmm. It provides a property called remote ID. And that corresponds to the server's identifier for that resource. Just by providing a little bit of information about what the JSON responses look like, we can dig into those, pull them out, determine whether we already have an object in the store that matches that or if we need to create a new one. And that's all automated. And so that makes sure that we're not duplicating objects. But as for actually reading the JSON into those, that's an entirely separate protocol in class. So we kind of have this transformer. Uh, We initialize it with a managed object. We send it a message along with the dictionary. And it checks some sort of key mapping to walk down through that JSON response, pulling values out as necessary. We're actually using key paths because some of the responses are not uh, entirely standardized as they're building the API out in parallel with the application. But it makes it really easy. So when you're doing the uniquing stuff, you keep hitting the context, the, the managed object context. How often, it, what's, what's performance like on that, on the core data side? It's not exactly great because we do have to do a lot of fetch requests to determine whether an object already exists or we need to make one. And I have yet to find a good way around that. I'm not really sure there, there is. Yeah. So we have that entire operation as an NS operation subclass, and we just put that onto some background queue and just let it go because it can be timely. Yeah. yeah. So other than the, like, the performance stuff, what are some limitations that you've run into with that kind of setup? The hard part about this setup is I think the problem is, is inconsistent responses in terms of uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we'll get some object back and it has a relationship or it has a, like a nested dictionary in the response that, has, that will actually correspond to some other model object that we have. Right, right. And the system is capable of using introspection on NS managed object to figure out what its attribute keys and relationship keys are. Mm-hmm. And it will refer to those model objects and their key mappings so that it can parse out this arbitrarily long JSON response, it can be nested 10 levels down. But as long as everything is consistent, it works great. The problem is, is that the API does not necessarily like being consistent. <laughs> For instance, you'll get a representation at a top level of some object, but if you get it as a relationship to something else, it won't necessarily be exactly the same and have the same keys. Oh, it won't even have the same keys? They might be slightly different. Some might be missing. Like, is there a reason on the... Is there a reason that you know of that that the keys would actually be different. Like I can see the, the, the amount of info coming back being different, but the keys being different strikes me as weird. I, I think it's just things are modeled a little bit differently on the server. And so when they're reusing resources as like relationships of different things, some keys don't necessarily automatically apply, mm-hmm. or there's ones that are only specific to when they're related to this thing over here. Okay. And so our approach does kind of fall down a little bit in that case. Okay. So your, your objects aren't one-to-one, like your model objects aren't one-to-one with the server model objects? They're close, but not one-to-one, no. Hmm. I, I think a good example of API design is GitHub's API because they're really good about that. If you 
request a user. Yeah. And then you also get a user back when you fetch a repo. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Key for key. Yeah. We, I have, I mean, on this client, we have the benefit of like being, uh, like we're not doing the, oh, we have people on the back end there, but so I guess we have, but, uh, even, even beyond that, we, we've worked relatively tightly with the back end team so that we actually have one-to-one models on either side. Uh, we actually drop some models, uh, on the client side just because we don't, they're not particularly useful for us. And we'll kind of crunch them down into a, uh, just like a property instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think having like trying to get one to one with the server, like have your model representations as close as possible seems important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's easy when you're writing an API that is strictly serving a mobile application. Mm-hmm. But in their case, they're also serving their web application. Right. So the requirements are a little bit different. Right. So how do you think you can bridge that gap a little more? Like if you're so, okay. So what are you, how are you combating that in terms of like this, the inconsistency with keys and the inconsistency with object representations, lots of conditionals. (laughs) No, (laughs) I, I spoke a little bit earlier about the protocols that our model objects have to conform to. And I don't have it right here in front of me. But one of them is the traditional key mapping to like mm-hmm. how a dictionary would map to your model object, but also the base key path of that mm-hmm. so that it, no matter where it exists in the response, we can set the base key path. Right. And then when we're going through the mapping, we're going to prepend that key path in front of every key in the map. Right. But other than that, we just have a post-update hook. So for anything that doesn't get automatically parsed we just kind of have to manually work around those weird issues it's not elegant but it's definitely working out well yeah it's solid it just makes me twitch a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things we're doing in this client for the same kind of a thing is reusing those model factories inside the mappings if this company for example has a user on it then inside the mappings we'll do a user json factory but so we'll do user factory factory from json object and then pass in the dictionary the user dictionary right so we'll do pass in the the user key from that from that dictionary and so then that so we're just kind of like chaining those factory objects okay that's yeah, that's interesting. And 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 again, those those kind of like we can mix and match those. So like if this endpoint takes like if we're hitting a V14 endpoint or the new the new version of the API endpoint over here, then we can pass in a we can parse that nested user differently than we would if we were hitting the old version of the endpoint. It's pretty I I kind of like it. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more uh, implementations or subclasses of NS Incremental Store. Yeah. For those that don't know, NS Incremental Store was added in 5.0. And it kind of gives you uh, an outlet between your, your normal fetch requests and your persistent store to go off to some external resource or external source and 
bring objects back. So from the perspective of you, the programmer, your fetch requests will take time. They may go to the pers persistent store or they may go out to some API, but it's completely transparent to you. And I'm really surprised that this hasn't been adopted more yet. I know that Matt T T Tom Thompson, <laughs> yeah, Matt Thompson, yeah, yeah, has AF incremental store, which is built on top of AF networking. But I, I still just haven't seen it in wide use yet, and I wonder why that is. Yeah, um, I think people has it has it worked super well up till now. I mean, I I, I feel like people are kind of um, nervous about it, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And the documentation is really poor. I mean, there, I, I remember a brief mention in a uh, WWDC session a couple of years ago. But beyond that, it seems like Apple isn't even really serious about it. Right. I'd be interested to know if they're using it internally in any of their applications. Yeah. I mean, doubtful, right? <laughs> right. You can always tell the APIs <laughs> that Apple is using and the ones that they are not using. I wanted to see if I could. I, I wasn't sure if it was a incremental store subclass or not but that did you see parcel kit the dropbox data store core data thing that came uh, out like yesterday no, no. Um, i've been on i've been on stockholm time so i miss out <laughs> right during all the fun things that happen during the day <laughs> right so it's a it's a it's just kind of a framework i have not used it um but it looks interesting so the the data store api do you know about the data store api from dropbox no. It's, I know nothing it's, about this. As far as I can tell, it's basically a, a key value store. It's just kind of like a key value store in Dropbox. I don't think it. I don't think it creates files anywhere, but it's just kind of like a sync. It's it's kind of a sync. Like a, it's just a cloud key value store, right? And it it has. It looks like a relatively nice API. Like I haven't dug into it too much, um, but then they have then someone someone made a made Parcel Kit, uh, which is kind of a framework to link the two together to link core data with. Uh, so Parcel Kit basically is is trying to link the two together, uh, core data and the data store API. Interesting. What advantage is there over just the? iCloud key value store because I mean everything I've heard is that the key value store and the document storage is solid like everyone's complaint is with the core data integration so this actually does do core data so like when you start it up you start up the sync manager and you actually pass it in pass in the your managed object context with it and the data store and then you tell the sync manager to set like the example that they give is they say associate the core data entity names with the corresponding Dropbox data store tables and says like sync manager set table books for entity name book. Okay. And then and then you say sync manager start observing. And then you hold on to that reference and that's the extent of their usage instructions. And so it's creating managed objects, inserting them and saving them all automatically? Is that how that goes so they have a manage object category to set properties on a record it looks like oh god that's a huge freaking oh my god holy shit that is one method that is a hundred and twenty hundred 
125 line method. 125 line methods are fine as long as that's where the magic happens. Right. Well, you, you're, there's you're a comment up one. There's a comment at the top. It just says this is where the magic happens. So. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm not going to run through all these conditionals and figure out what's actually happening in here. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like a different thing, right? I mean, it's different than what we're talking about, which is consuming like like we 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 kind of are moderately spoiled in that we work for a primarily Rails shop, right? So like if I need an API done, I can kind of like lean over and tap someone on the shoulder and be like, "Hey, do you think you can make this endpoint for me?" Right. That is nice. Yeah. <laughs> And so this is kind of like a different thing of like rolling your own back end without a back end kind of a thing. Do you trust these services? Dropbox? Like parse? Oh. Like I, never, I never used parse. That's at, Facebook picked them up, right? I'm not sure. Did they? I think so. Yeah. Uh, yes, they did. Um, yeah, I never used. I never used parse. Did you use parse? With my first apprentice, she was working on a kind of a side project where we didn't have anyone to do a rails api so she was kind of building a pseudo backend and parse yeah it seemed reliable also using it for push notifications and that was nice how does how does parse work i'm not familiar with it like at all i i think it's very similar to this dropbox data store api it's you just make tables on the web and it's a simple key value store if i'm wrong somebody somebody from uh, parse should email gordon at thoughtbot.com <laughs> thanks <laughs> Now they're going to think I'm the one with the GORUCK hat. Yeah. They can't see this video either, though, so <laughs> no one's going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, man. So what else is there in that kind of category of stuff? There's, like, Parse. There's that stuff that Matt Thompson did with the build packs on Heroku, the uh, right. core what data is that? build packs. Uh, Helios. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's, like, wrapping up all of the kind of crazy weird – Mad Scientist stuff that he's done, mm-hmm. Helios.io. And so this kind of wraps up. What is it, do you remember all the like the individual things that this wraps up, like what they're called? I don't remember their proper names, but it does data synchronization, push notifications, in-app purchases, uh, passbook, newsstand, logging and analytics. I didn't pull those off the top of my head. I'm reading the website. Right. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Here you go. Here's the names of the – so they're, they're all in – it's actually a bunch of individual – libraries uh ground control does like remote configuration oh no this is different this is different i think thing. it's I, I think they're all the same it's just houston is not here right that's part of his because that doesn't really make sense helios i want to play with but again it's kind of weird working at a at a at a company that does a lot of back-end stuff to be like hey i want to try this roll your own back-end kind of thing for an app most of the time we don't really need this but i can see it being awesome for people that like don't need an actual backend. You know, they don't need a actual. If if they're just moving data back and forth from a server, like if everything is created on the device, uh, and it's just like a client-driven app, then having something like this available is like huge. Yeah, if I had to go with one, I'd definitely go with this one. My concern about Parse was it was free, and I didn't really ever know if it was just going to disappear one day. Right, but. I'm fairly certain that Heroku is not going anywhere. And if I wanted to have my kind of roll your own backend set up anywhere, it would be Heroku. Right. If I was having a proper Rails API built, 
I'm pretty sure that's where we would end up anyway. <laughs> right. I, I, I want the power of Heroku behind my application. Right. right. So what didn't we hit about the uh, parsing stuff? I guess we could circle back a little bit. I th- the nicest part about my setup is that you make a request to an API with a completion block. And in that completion block, you don't have to worry about the response at all. In fact, I've set it up in such a way where you can get the raw response back, but you get a higher level object, uh, a sort of API response wrapper, where you can get at the original data. It also holds some meta information. And in that meta object, we have like the HTTP status code, a nicely formatted NS error object, really high level things. If I'm implementing this uh, API method in a view controller, I want that completion block to give me things that I could use right now without any extra work. And in addition, we get an array of the remote identifiers that were parsed in that operation. So I can quickly run, th- run those through a fetch request and get the same objects that I just updated. Right. If necessary. Because, like, yeah, so, like, the only th- – again, I haven't played with RESTkit very much. Um, and RESTkit does a good amount of what we've been talking about. Um, it's probably a good place for people to get started if they just really don't want to roll their own thing. Wouldn't you say so? It seems like it seems like what most people are recommending or using. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's bothered me though about it is that the object knows, like the model itself knows a lot about how it's represented inside the JSON, right? Like just looking at their example thing, doing the mapping. So you have a you have an object mapping, uh, and then you add attribute mappings from dictionary, and then you pass in the property or the key, I think, the key from the JSON, and then the property that that key corresponds to. And that's done in, I mean, I guess you could pull that out into a mapping class. I guess you don't need to do that inside the object itself. I feel like that's where most people are going to do it. You know what I mean, though, about, about like, how do you feel about the, the object itself knowing how it's represented inside the JSON? Because is that how you're doing the mappings? Yes. The model objects provide a dictionary that says how the property keys map to the, the JSON keys. Right. Yeah. There is, a, there is an abstract superclass for all of my managed objects that has remote ID created at, updated at, mm-hmm. the stuff that's going to apply everywhere. And we are using those to make sure that we're not spending time um, parsing and updating objects unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my model objects have a good idea about how they're represented on the server. I'm not really sure how we could tease those two apart. Well, I mean, you could do like what I was talking about, right? So you, you have like an intermediary builder object that knows what the mapping looks like. And it's creating the... It's a little more com- again. It's com- more, a little more complicated because I'm just dealing with essentially NS object subclasses. You're dealing with NS managed object subclasses, so creating those on the fly is a bit different. It seems like having some kind of an intermediary layer in between there would be able to that can create like user objects, for example, and then user doesn't have to know what it looks like in JSON form and. And this was big for me because we really do have this in a couple of places where we have two different model factories based on the two different API endpoints because they're significantly different. 
And if that's hard coded into the object itself, I would worry about running into that at some point, right? If you can't do a 100% migration over to the new API, then how do you, now are you creating a different dictionary inside the object? And now the object has two ideas of how it's represented. And right, yeah, that's a great point. That's something that I hadn't considered, but that absolutely makes sense. If you get into that situation where you have to migrate to a new API and support an old one at the same time, right? my approach would not work. Right. No. Which, I mean, I don't think you always will have to get into that situation, right? Like, I think a lot of times you can just support the new API and not the old one because... If the, if you can update entirely, like if everything you you can do today can be done on the new API and the new API is 100% ready and you just move entirely 100% to the new API, then you don't have to worry about this, right? But we've been moving to the new API incrementally as stuff gets done. So like new features that we need in the client aren't being implemented on in the in the old version of the API, only the new version. So we had to start hitting the new version of the API endpoints for specific tasks. And so we're moving gradually. The whole thing will be moved over. But in the meantime, we have this position where we need to support, not, not just like support, the, like have the new API and then have like some kind of backup support for the old API. We, we really are calling both at the same time. Like you could do one request that hits the the new api and then the next request could hit the old api and can you elaborate how you configure which api you're hitting in those requests so we have the um the, we have request factories so inside the request factory we'll have the idea there is to abstract away from the other objects that may need to build these things like they don't need to know exactly what endpoint you need to hit to get the current user Right. So like the request for the current user, all it does is it creates a path. So you call a, f a class method on on the user request factory and it you call user request factory request for current user. It creates the path out of it creates the endpoint because it knows what endpoint it needs. And then it passes that into an API request factory method. How does it know which which endpoint it needs, though? The because because that's it's its only job. The method all the method does is it returns a request that does this one thing. Okay, so you have separate methods for each endpoint. I have separate yeah, I have separate factory methods for each potential server operation. Oh, okay. Right. So if I need the if I need the user the current if I need to get the current user back from cuz you've logged in, right? So we're persisting that information like your user ID basically. And when you launch the app again, we may not have all of the information that we need for you. So we need to get that back into memory. We do a call to the server to get the get the you know users slash one or whatever your user ID is. We don't have to create that request every time. All we do is user request request for current user, and that will give us back a request object that knows the the method the the endpoint. API version that it needs to hit, what parameters it needs to get past, and the um, what the factory it needs, the you know the model factory that it needs to decode the response 
from the server. Okay. So, and then we pass those requests to uh, an API client. So our, we have a, you know, a API client class and it's, it is a AF HTTP client subclass. And basically all it does is it has like some setup methods and a couple properties. And then it has this perform request method and a success block and a failure block. And so the API client then call, it knows all the, you know, base URL stuff and the API keys and everything to interact with the service. And then it hands back the response object, the already parsed response object inside the, um, Success block. The answer to your question? Yeah, I get it now. That's a similar pattern. Uh, Apple's using that in the social framework. Oh, okay. When you make requests to like Twitter or Facebook, you make a uh, SL request, I believe, configure a few parameters, and then just execute it. Right. And you get a response back. There's also some new map API that does something similar, like a map item request or something. Yeah. You know, for finding nearby points of interest, businesses, things like that. I think I like that pattern. I think I might steal that. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I think it works well. I mean, it just just the the kind of JSON model factories, you know what I mean? I think those are probably the strongest part of this, this pattern. The only thing I don't like is that because all of your actual requests are going through the setup, all, all of the knowledge about the return stuff is in the request. It's not actually in the API client that performs the request. So like the, uh, the success block is just, it, it's a void block that returns ID result. The only downside to this, and I'm not sure, short of having a ton of other factory methods that then create these individual requests and pass back specific return blocks, which just seems to be like noisy. You know, that, that just feels like it's getting noisier and noisier. So the only problem to this is that then you, your return isn't typed. So you kind of have to know what the API is, what that specific request you're calling is going to return in order to cast the return object wherever you're actually calling the request. Does that make sense? I see. Yes. If I'm trying to get the user from like a view controller or something, right? So like I call get current user. If I just let autocomplete do its thing, it's going to, the block is going to be ID result. I have to know that this is a user object and I'm only getting one back. I have to type the result as user because result is already parsed for me, right? It's already been turned into the return to the object, uh, to the, into the model object. That's kind of a limitation because like if you do, you know, if you want to get a bunch of locations or something, you know what I mean? You call for a bunch of locations. You have to know that this is going to return an array or it's going to return, you know, a single location. Is it not location. possible to have the request objects kind of dictate what the success block should eventually look like? Like a type? Maybe. I'm not sure how to pass that through. Right now we're just type defing the block in the header for the API client. That could be kind of an interesting thing to look into to figure out how to get that to work properly. Maybe you could pull the return. That seems weird, but it, it could like maybe re- pull the return type out of the request object. Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a good pattern. I think I think abstracting out the the key to it. I think is abstracting this stuff out of the model object into the builder objects, and the builder objects are a little messy, and they could 
their implementation here, I think like we could probably clean it up a little bit. Um, but I think it's better than most of the alternatives that I've seen. Gordon, you want to shut this thing down? I do want to shut this thing down. It's been fine, but shut it down. <laughs> Show notes for this episode are available at thoughtbot.com slash build phase slash two. If you have any comments or questions, you can email them to buildphase at thoughtbot.com or message us on Twitter or app.net at thoughtbot. <laughs>